Greetings. It's, uh, well, kind of cloudy and unseasonably cold day here at Six and Daniel, but things are looking brighter as I'm joined by another illustrious alumni, real estate mogul, Matt DeFanis. Right, mogul, that's exactly it. <laughs> I say that partially in jest, but when we get into some of your accomplishments, I don't think I'm too far off. Um, welcome back to Six and Daniel. You're not too far from here, but thanks for joining me. It's good to be here. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, as I said, I like to stay in touch with our local alumni and 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 speak to our students about how diverse a psych degree can be from here. Um, you know, as I look a little bit at your career path, which you can shed some light on. I mean, psych major, law school, real estate, it goes on and on. But we're going to get into, you know, some of the decisions you made from stepping foot on here on campus as a freshman to where you are now. But listeners know that we can't do that without doing the fast five. And that's the segment where I just ask five, get to know you questions. I have not run these past you ahead of time. So these are, these are a surprise. The overall, well, the majority of them are kind of themed around summer. I think we're all looking toward warmer weather. My kids are in, in little league and, and it's not been pleasant to be out there the past couple of days. So let's, Let's think warm thoughts as we go into the fast five. You get, you ready? Absolutely. All right. Here's a fastball right down the plate for the first one. What's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Mm, probably um, chocolate with peanut butter. Nice. Okay. All right. From um, from the store, or is there any place in particular? Well, there is a there is a now. I, I try to limit my sugar, but there is a terribly mm -hmm. naughty peanut butter ice cream thing at the Oberweiss ice cream store, mm -hmm. just you know, less than a mile off campus. It is naughty. Um, yeah. and it is peanut butter, um, peanut butter decadence. Uh, it's dietary smut, is what it is. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, that that place, that in the burger joint, you know, that's like a once a, a month kind of treat for myself as well. What was your favorite outdoor game to play as a kid? Mm. I would say when I was a kid and not at all competitively, but I'd certainly remember in grade school, you know, being out in the playground and and, you know, ending up playing very, very low skill soccer. <laughs> So I, do, I say that because I want to make very clear, I'm not a serious, I was never even remotely a serious soccer player, but if it was get out on the playground and that's what we'd be doing, that's what it was. All right. I think, you know, they know that because you didn't call it football. So, you know, that, that proves right. exactly. Right. So right. those of us, including myself, that call it My soccer. My credibility knows. is already, yes, very low because of that. <laughs> Who knows we're not very serious about it. All right. It's wedding season. You know, I was trying to, schedule a photographer for our awards uh ceremony coming up here in a couple of weeks and i i was reminded that it is wedding season <laughs> on top of all the graduation mm -hmm. uh, activities it's not the easiest of tasks but if you're at a wedding reception what song would get you on the dance floor uh almost nothing <laughs> because if it's if it's something that would make me think i wanted to dance i would probably go out of my way and i don't drink and so i'm not even going to be lubricated by <laughs> so it would be it would be if if i have my partner with me it would be something that i could slow dance to and not look like a moron that would be it all right fair enough fair enough 
So, I mean, if if they put on, you know, the chicken dance or whoop, there it is. That's, oh, yeah. That's no, no. No, 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 no. Okay, I, would, okay. I would make sure that I went to a faraway table. <laughs> okay. Or right. I would get out my camera. I'm a serious photographer. I would get out there my camera go. to make sure I memorialize the other people who are on the dance floor at that point. <laughs> and that's how you get far in this world, ladies and gentlemen. Exactly. All right. Now we're going to move off summer and go into a little bit more situational. If you could put wings on any land animal, which one would you choose? Oh, I, uh, so I have a couple of Irish setters and, um, they're such sweet, uh, mentally vacant creatures. And the younger one, uh, Bentley, I think it would be a delight to watch Bentley as a winged creature. <laughs> it reminds me of, um, do you remember the movie, the never ending story? Falcor. Mm -hmm. There was a big like oh, yeah. dog in there, oh, yeah. Falcor, and it was like yes, the coolest exactly. thing when I was a kid. So yeah, that would be really rad. I'm deciding between two for the fifth and final question, since you're handling these so well. All right. So would you rather question? <laughs> would you rather get a postcard from a stranger every day from all around the world? Or would you rather get one 10 minute phone call with any human of your choosing? So that could be the president, your favorite actor, musician, whatever. One 10 minute phone call a year or a surprise postcard from a random person across the world. I think I would take the postcard option because I, I enjoy connecting with people. I'm not as steroidally extroverted as, as maybe some people would think, but I do enjoy making new connections with people. And I think I would enjoy that knowing that they were coming from different people and different places all around the world. Yeah. Cause you, would be like a, a daily treat, like a surprise. Yeah, like exactly. Exactly. Put differently. <laughs> there isn't anybody so special uh, in terms of the world of celebrities where I would want to trade that the postcards daily for just one 10 minute conversation sure. in a sure. year. I agree. You know, it would be kind of dynamic, you know, to have the ear of, of someone seemingly untouchable to like the common man, but yes, uh, mail is boring these days. <laughs> At least mine is right. <laughs> so yep. to know when I came home from work, I, someone could be asking me a question, telling me about wherever it's, 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 it's a Sudanese postcard in my mailbox. Like, yes, that would be really rad. All right. Off the cool seat. I didn't, I didn't warm it up too hot, but we're, we're done with the fast five and you did fantastically. We're coming up on graduation, but let's talk about the fall. So um, you're, you're from here locally and you decide mm -hmm. to go to the university of Illinois and you're going to major in psychology. Was that your chosen major going in or how did you, you know, come to get involved with the department? Well, so interesting. I was a transfer as an undergrad because if I'm being totally honest, graduating mm -hmm. from one of the local high schools, graduating from Champaign Centennial, my attitude as a graduating senior was anywhere but U of I because <laughs> I didn't, I knew it was way too local and I didn't have anywhere near uh, the appreciation I should have for how both how competitive and how special a place it is. So I started college somewhere else. I got into a lot of exotic places that were far away, but I ended up starting college at a private liberal arts school not very far away from here, but then transferred. 
So I transferred, did one semester at Parkland College, the community college mm -hmm. here in Champaign, and then transferred in. And as I will tell anyone that goes by slowly enough, if I had known then what I know now, I would never have considered any place but the University of Illinois. <laughs> sure. Uh, I just, you know, in, in the rearview mirror, I look at the, I look at for being such a big state school, I look at the unique flavor and level of diversity that the campus has. And I look at how competitive and how elite the place is. Um, and, and as a community stakeholder, you know, and somebody who's far into his career, it's like, we literally have the smartest people on the whole planet that <laughs> seek out this university and this right. community. But yeah, I think, you know, as a fellow townie, we are a bit clouded by that. You know, we we, we grow up yeah. as part of our, our part of our culture, but we don't really look that deeply into it. And yeah, and when you go to school, you kind of want to get away just for the experience of it. And you do take for granted how incredible this university is. So I, I, I understand. But then going back, so so like so, you know, like a lot of psych majors, there's usually something that causes people to choose psych. Well, in my case, mm -hmm. I have an uncle who is a career long uh, clinical PhD clinical psychologist, and he was the specific reason that psych was of interest to me. So like a lot of people, I went into psych as a chosen major starting from, you know, day one, I didn't go in undeclared, I knew, you know, at the very beginning of college, that was my chosen major. Um, and I am living proof that it's so incredibly versatile. Of course, a lot of people that go into psych as an undergrad, um, if you're gonna be a professional, you almost have to end up doing grad school, um, a lot of grad school in psych, and, but I'm living proof of just how versatile the degree mm -hmm. is as an undergrad. And also, just to speak to the versatility of psych as a major within LAS at the University of Illinois, um, having the ability to, to grab electives um, from just a staggering array of <laughs> options within LAS. And I also took some electives that were um, in business, but almost all of those were within LAS and just, you know, made, made me almost ridiculously well-rounded, um, even though it was a path that was, you know, semi-accidental as I went through it. Yeah, I believe we're up to like 170 different majors in LAS alone. So, I mean, the, the versatility yeah. of things that you can dabble in <laughs> in the college. And, is, and like is... all of those things being a walk of, you know, two or three blocks from the psych building. So, <laughs> right. you know, the psych building sort of becomes your your home base because that's where um, more of your classes are than anything else. But but yeah, having having this entire universe of other things at my fingertips that were within a two block walk of that building. I know I, I see it every day and it, it's it's still amazing to me. Um, so then, all right, you kind of have this idea and, and you have family family lineage in psychology and then you choose to shift a little bit or maybe coincide because we do have a lot of lawyers and judges that are that are former psych majors. Is this the next step then or what takes you to law then from here? Yeah, so. Um... So my dad was, um, he was the uh, state's attorney for the entire time that I was growing up here in Champaign. So was state's attorney from the year I was born for 19 years. And then when I was in college, became a judge and just retired a couple of less than two years ago as the presiding judge here in Champaign County. So I also had that exposure to the law. Um, although, I mean, we're talking an, an interesting 
like a state's attorney, he was prosecuting capital murder cases. Um, so <laughs> you can imagine the dinner conversations <laughs> in my sure. house growing up. Yeah. Um, but in fact, I actually served a stint on the alumni advisory board for psych. And one of the one of the members at that time was a then now retired, but then sitting judge uh, Jeffrey Ford. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, a reminder that people that come out of U of I psych end up in all of these other areas. And, and Judge Ford ended up really making a name for him. So besides being just an incredible quality human being all around, he really made a name for himself as a pioneer in drug court, which very much is the intersection of the criminal justice system with psychology. Sure. So is this and the psychology this... of, of addiction? Sure. So is this your your plan then? Is it was it going to marry those two things, or was it a, a complete shift of focus? It was a it was a shift of focus, I would say. But as I said, going going into psych, thinking that that was potentially a vocational uh, destination, and then realizing that it was this incredibly versatile springboard. And I and I will say, my dad had had been quick to point out, you know, he majored in English literature as an undergrad, mm -hmm. and so. Um, you know, and so it was one of those fields that had uh, that had grad school written all over it because it's not like you're going to go bust down a lot of career doors with a bachelor's degree in English literature. So <laughs> I knew that psych was versatile if I chose to change direction. Um, but yeah, and, and it turns out that there are a lot of people uh, in law school who have that same background. Mm -hmm. You know, who and came out of psych. While you were going to law school, you started working as a realtor correct so it was like a means to an end i actually was doing real estate or... first oh okay. did real estate first yeah yeah so i got i um i got married um as gosh i got married at age 20 so i got married halfway through undergrad so wow. you know my undergraduate experience was a little anomalous um because i already you know i already had that aspect of my life and so um yeah so so that kind of shaped things uh, a little differently for me. Yeah, because your family planning and doing all those things a, a, a typical. Well, yeah, and we, we didn't have kids for many years, sure. but, but we bought a house early. Right. She, was, she was several years older than me, had a had a steady income. I waited tables at the time, but we bought a house when we were when I was, uh, I think, 21. And then that process stimulated my interest. So during the last semester of undergrad at U of I, I took the real estate pre-license class and got my real estate license that same month that I finished undergrad. Um, well, technically, I had I had dropped one accounting class <laughs> and I had to take one summer class and it was so worth it. I took a summer class to make up for the elective accounting class that I had dropped. But anyway, so I graduated <laughs> during the summer, uh, had taken my real estate class in May and then started in real estate. But I was 22 years old when I started in real estate. Um, and after a couple of years of that, it became apparent as a 22 year old, there was no chance I was ever going to make a living selling real estate and then went to law school. And I was doing real estate uh, concurrently with law school. You're not technically supposed to work. And I was working essentially full time. But by the time I was halfway through law school, I had actually gotten to sort of critical mass as a self-employed independent contractor realtor and um, had, had no desire to change careers. So law school came after real estate. So you had no desire to change careers, but you still finished you you went through but I, oh absolutely yeah still finished law school but man i you know doing summer law school summer law clerking jobs you know where you're at the bottom of a law firm totem pole and it was um you know it's just 
like, and I already was self-employed. So once the income had started to come in, I really enjoyed the autonomy of self-employment. And of course, lawyers have that eventually, but they've got to work a lot of years to get to the point of being a shareholder or to, again, build a solo practice where they're making a good living as a solo practitioner. Do you feel you use aspects that you learned as a psych major in real estate? Like, did oh, you... Yeah. Did you yeah. What 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 have you peeled from the department or your classes or just your overall persona being guided in the department that that has translated to to real estate? It's interesting because as I'm hearing you ask me this question right now, where I am in my life, in my career, in more ways than would I would have ever thought possible. So the joke in my line of work is as a realtor in residential practice. And the reason residential is important is because you're dealing with people buying and selling, in many cases, their own home. So mm -hmm. it is very emotionally charged. So you know, next to actual licensed activities, the next most common activity is un unlicensed mental health work with clients. I mean, that's so <laughs> there is so much psychology that goes into just everyday dealings with clients, but also as a result of this wildly improbable journey that I have been on in the last several years, I, I teach implicit bias um, courses all over the country. And so I look at this at the mind science of implicit bias and can directly link that back to various psych classes as an undergrad at the University of Illinois in ways that I would never have imagined while I was in those classes. But yeah, absolutely. It's just one of those things where it is so incredibly versatile and it gives you uh, an additional lens to look at so many different things and human interactions or even human machine interactions because you've got other um, uh, other fields like human factors and industrial organizational psych. There's just so much within that one uh, umbrella that gives you these lenses that that help shape how you would see so many different things in the world. I'll expand upon this class a little bit. So do you actually travel and 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 to to groups of realtors in in specific areas? Is this virtual or how did this get started? It's both. I um I ended up um I was on the Illinois uh lead, Illinois Realtors uh leadership team and I served as the president of the 50,000 member Illinois Realtors. Mm -hmm. I'm the only person ever from the Champaign area to have been a a past president of the state trade organization. And when I came onto that leadership team and then like a lot of nonprofits, volunteer officers are on for several years, one year of which they're the president. Well, I came on to a leadership team uh, and a period when the board of directors was 100% white in the state of Illinois, mm. I mean, including Chicago, we were not inclusive at all. And that was not anywhere on my radar at all and went from unaware to aware of our lack of inclusion to then determined to try to improve upon it and then really outraged as I started realizing things like glass ceilings that I'd never seen before. And then I watched <laughs> people I love bounce off of them I'm like, oh, um, and so it became, you know, a, a bit of an obsession, uh, improving inclusion and then studying why are we this way and how do we fix this and improve this? and. And in my own journey, uh, that meant going and and trying to recruit talent and build bridges in the places that we hadn't been doing that. And so that was in communities of color. 
Uh, and in more of my time than any other has been spent uh, building bridges in the black community. And as somebody representing a statewide trade organization, that meant going to Chicago. That was where, mm -hmm. that was the target rich environment where we had the most, the largest pool of talent. Um, so I got very involved. So as a result of all of that, and having ended up much to my surprise, um, sort of making a name for myself as somebody who lived and breathed DEI and improving inclusion and building bridges, that then led to opportunities to be pulled into training and the National Association of Realtors in recent years has gotten way onto the right side of fair housing and, um, and improving inclusion. And to that end, they have developed some very robust courses. There's an at home with diversity six hour course that I got certified to teach. I was asked by the then president to teach that to all of the N National Association of Realtors NAR committee volunteers. The first time I taught that was virtually to 1100 people. And oh. more recently, they've then developed this bias override certification course that is taught as a three or four hour course. And that course very much is the intersection of the mind science of implicit bias at the intersection of real estate practice and specifically yes. showcasing how it is that our unconscious minds will cause anyone to end up uh, connecting certain dots without ever being aware of it. And in my line of work can cause disparate treatment of different types of client groups without the person having any awareness that they're doing no intention to do it, mm -hmm. no awareness they're doing it while it's happening, <laughs> and usually not being aware it has happened. And in my in my industry, there was a sort of a bombshell hidden camera expose done by Newsday in 2019 called Long Island Divided, hidden camera catching many, many, many real estate practitioners treating black or white versus or black or brown testers identically situated very differently. And in most sure. cases, clearly having no idea they were doing it. So anyway, so I end up teaching, among other things, teaching uh, that implicit bias, that bias override certification mm -hmm. course. Yeah, all over the country. Some of those are taught virtually, um, but in many cases, I'm, I'm going other places in the country to do it. Wow. Well, I mean... You were also the chair of the National Association of Realtors, you know. Well, you professional may... standards, the professional okay. standards committee of the National Association of Realtors. So collectively, that committee of 100 or so people, they're the keepers of the code of ethics. And the National Association of Realtors first promulgated a code of ethics in 1913 when the national organization was just a few years old. But going back to this DEI issue, starting in the 1920s, our code of ethics had a housing discrimination mandate. A realtor shall not be instrumental into in, in, introducing a class of people or race of people whose uh, presence shall be deemed injurious to property values. We had wow. a housing discrimination mandate. If a, if a realtor brought the wrong color of person onto the wrong block, they could and would have been sanctioned for it, brought up on ethics charges. Wow. Um, and our industry didn't eradicate, it got less explicitly racist over the years, but our code of ethics didn't eradicate the last vestiges of that discriminatory language until 1974, six years after fair housing had been codified in federal law. And the realtors as an industry fought hard against fair housing. You can't tell me who I can and can't <laughs> sell my house to. They were all in against fair housing. And so we have a terrible history as an, as an industry 
of uh, damaging large segments of our population through housing discrimination. And specifically, a study out of Chicago from 2019 called the Plunder of Black Wealth in Chicago estimates that housing discrimination practices just in Chicago, just against black Chicagoans, just during the 50s and 60s. So one city, one segment of the population, mm -hmm. one generation, estimated in 2019 inflation adjusted dollars to have ripped out of the black community between 3.2 and 4 billion, with a B, 4 billion dollars. And that wasn't that long ago. So even no. after fair housing became the law of the land, that certainly didn't fix everything. But when you look at how, that would be the equivalent of stealing a $40,000 scholarship fund from 100,000 separate black college students in one city, in one Yo. generation. Imagine the ripple effect through the generations when that what when what would have been generational wealth, because most middle class Americans, the biggest source of their net worth and the legacy, the financial legacy they pass on comes from homeownership. And we as an industry deprived black America of that opportunity. So would you say Illinois is now forward on this or is this on par with other states in the in, in the nation or how is this going Organized real estate is now moving very hard into the right side of history on this. So the okay, realtors, um, yeah, organized real estate is a three-level deal. When when somebody joins the trade organization, they're simultaneously joining their local association, their state association, and the national association. And right now, top down, because the national association is doing a ton of work, making a ton of resources, this, this bias override course being the best, most recent example, um, and then providing grant money to ensure that state and local associations have the resources to bring an instructor in to actually do this, which is, you know, which is not a small cost. So you don't want to give local associations any reason to say, no, we can't afford to bring. No, no, we have created the course. We have trained up the instructors and we're providing grant funding to make sure that nobody anywhere in the country cannot bring in those resources. And furthermore, the National Association of Realtors now has a mandatory box for every local has to do certain uh, a series of uh, DEI related items and offerings to their members to be able to maintain their charter, basically. Sure. So yeah, it's it's a complex system. And I'm really, really honored and proud that I get to play a role in helping to bring really eye opening um, content to to those members i don't that's not my primary line of work i sell real estate for a living here in <laughs> champagne urbana sure. area but i do that i i'm a road warrior for as long as i can uh, capture hearts and minds and when i was the chair of the professional standards committee that was 2020 when the country was on fire and when the pandemic yes. shut things down and we had a rash of realtors caught on viral video engaging in god-awful bigoted hate speech and it was going viral and this was proliferating and First, the bigoted hate speech is not victimless. I mean, it really is soul crushing to the people or the class of people it gets aimed at. And then also it just damages the the um, reputation of the entire industry. And so I was honored just because of the, the, the chairmanship that I had that year. I got to help shepherd through a whole series of changes to our code of ethics that um, resulted in a ban on discriminatory hate speech by realtors and expanded the reach of our code of ethics to include all of a realtor's activities, not just, no, you can't be a bigot while you're on the clock. You can't <laughs> engage in hate speech while you're 
you know, doing showings. No, no. Sure. If you're a realtor and you sign on to be a member of the National Association of Realtors, you don't get to make those kinds of remarks under any circumstances. You are not permitted to do it, and there will be a steep price to pay if you do. Sure. Rightly so. I mean, you can't have a hog wild Facebook personal page at home while you're trying to, uh, you know, portray something else in the professional realm. That well, just look at you getting up. that just intuitively, but you would be surprised. <laughs> that was not so intuitive to some people. And interesting, again, going into my law school mode for a moment, we had people that were saying, well, this is the latest in the war against free speech. No, no. The First Amendment is literally not implicated. The government can't sanction you for right. being a bigot on, on off the clock. We as a private member-driven trade organization, we're the only ones that can do it because the state licensing authority can't take away your license for being a bigot if it didn't have to do with your licensed activities. Sure. But we as the realtor trade organization can say, when you sign on to membership here, you're agreeing you're bound by our uh, code of ethics on and off the clock. 100%. So if someone is looking to get in this field, because you know, as you said, and now I can kind of picture it because I remember when I bought my first house and the amount of phone calls and and <laughs> texts and everything I had, like it was like a new member of my family there for a little bit, you know? Oh, yeah. Realtor. So yeah, it was every little step and every little thought. I was like, I better run this by my realtor. Um, what would you suggest? the starting point would be for someone is it to join a firm like yours or to try to go out on their own or how does someone leap into the business out of the shoe? yeah i would say especially if we were talking to an undergrad i mean there is a challenge with because most realtors not all but the overwhelming majority are self-employed and i just remember doing this right out of undergrad it was very difficult to get traction with clientele when you know the people that were that were into their into their careers i mean they're not going to generally hire somebody younger than their kid but mm -hmm. i ultimately gained critical mass by um at that point in my 20s uh, really gaining traction with a large uh, following of grad students who were here for PhD programs or vet med wow. programs that had them here for several years. Vet med was the best. They had the highest propensity to buy because they were here for four years and they all had a million pets. And so being <laughs> tenants was more problematic. But I would just say if you're if you were an undergrad and you're thinking, well, I should at least explore this, then you really owe it to yourself to go at least meet with somebody and ask to do some shadowing. That's not uncommon at all. I've had people shadow me many different times just so they sort of get an idea of day in the life. And also because, you know, I'm a million years old, back when I was getting started, you really didn't have teams. Right. And so it really was it really was the solo practitioner. You didn't have teams. Well, now teams actually dominate the marketplace. And so what I've found with people coming onto my team that have been in their 20s, the same age range where I was really struggling and it took years to get to critical mass, we don't have those impediments. If you've got the credibility, if you're hitching your wagon to a team mm -hmm. lead that's that's got a good reputation for you know being ethical and being uh, and being credible, then you're getting the benefit of that shared credibility. You're getting that halo effect, and I've found that my clients that are that are you know, old enough to be those those younger licensees parents have no problem trusting somebody in their 20s um, with 
with giving them advice on what's likely to be their largest financial transaction in their lives. As long as they know that person is associated with somebody where they know where they're going to go to get their questions answered. Mm -hmm. Basically, they know they've got the phone a friend option and the person on the phone happens to actually have all the answers. Exactly. Now, and pardon my ignorance here, because and then where do all you've got like an alphabet of designations and specialties here. We got ABR, CDPE, GRI, SFR, CON, INV, and goes on and on. Are those things you just uh, accumulate throughout your career? Are these special, you know, designations that you chose? Alphabet soup. I was like, you know, if, if I'm getting in the industry, what are some of these things that, you know, you, you would probably be wise to to look into? Yeah. So ABR is accredited buyer representative. So it means I've been through a curriculum that's focused on uh, on representing uh, the needs of buyer clients. Probably the more in, the most interesting one is um, CIPS, Certified International Property Specialist. And um, that's really designed to help sensitize practitioners to the needs of people coming from all over the world. So it's not a credential so I can go sell real estate in other parts of the Mm. world. I have a license from the state of Illinois, but it's a credential that helps me better service and understand the needs of a global clientele. And again, working in this global university community, I have worked with clients going inbound and outbound to all parts of the world. Europe, Asia, Australia, that was the most interesting only because it was the largest number of time zones away. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so, but there's a variety. And then one of them is a uh, at home with diversity. That's a certification. Again, I got that so I could be credentialed to teach that. Um, and that's one of the certification courses I teach. Uh, and then the bias override one is the most recent. Wow. All right. Well, let's wrap this up. I don't like to keep my guests too long. I, you're you're quite busy, so I'm going <laughs> to let you get back at it. But before we go, let's uh, dial back the clock. Now, you know, as a as a married man, um, were you living on campus then before you bought your house together? Or did you did you not no, have we the- had a <laughs> I would never have bought my first house. But for the fact that we lived off campus in an apartment complex that turned out to be a disaster. Oh no! <laughs> had a slight, slightly fearful for our own safety, and so honestly, I would never have been sort of stimulated into uh, buying a home at that age. But for the the horrible, it was so bad the place has since been condemned and, and demolished. <laughs> but anyway, yes. Yeah, so, so the rest of your question, college housing is as greatly improved to all the listeners and families listening at home, by the way, there was, there oh, was yeah. a difference. You're right. different that was not college then. housing. You're that right. was not college housing. <laughs> it was off campus, something that, that's, that stupidly I get credit for having chosen. <laughs> and actually I think we're, I, as more and more places pop up, I feel like we're, we have even more housing options than, than people to fill them, but there are smarter people than I that have done the calculations. And I'm sure there's just a wide range of availability out there. That said, not living on campus, when you made your way to campus, what were some of your favorite places back then and and now? Are any of them the same? Probably not likely as we've had a lot of turnover, but let's go back in the day. 
Yeah, so back in the day, so I was not ever anybody who was part of the campus nightlife scene. So mm -hmm. my favorite parts of the campus, and I alluded to this earlier, you know, realizing that I got this entire universe of course offerings available within a two block walk. And so going from the psych building to, uh, you know, getting to walk across the quad to go take Econ 102 in Follinger Auditorium, or go take an Econ class, um, you know, that was just slightly south and east. Um, the quad, of course, and the architecture and um, and marveling at the University of Illinois Armory, which at the time of its opening over 100 years ago was the world's largest unsupported roof sure. structure. I mean, there's just some very, very special. Oh, and, you know, Lincoln Hall before the mm -hmm. massive uh, refurbishment that has happened since, which was a disaster of a layout, but still a crazy cool building and has now been, you know, significantly remade and refurbished. It was the architecture. And so now as a, as a community stakeholder who gets to be on campus regularly, you know, I get this this dichotomy of the parts of the main quad that are as they just as they were, even though many of the buildings have been improved since then, but you've still got this amazing historic architecture and this quintessentially University of Illinois landmark. And then I watch the skyline that has popped right. up where there wasn't one. You know, the old University Inn from the, what, early 70s had for, you know, forever been the tallest building, the lone, you know, 20-plus mm -hmm. story skyscraper. And now the city of Champaign had to change its zoning to stop uh, us from having a bunch of 20-plus story buildings. <laughs> so we didn't, so Green Street didn't become a concrete jungle with no sky. Um, mm -hmm. But it's just, it's so beautifully urbanized i remember you know back in my day you know the people from chicago would act like this was mayberry in such a mm -hmm. boring small town and you can't say that when you were in the campus town area now it is extremely urban and the food offerings and the competitive nature of the market for every restaurant including the ones that aren't part of a chain to be really really a top notch it's it's just incredible it's kind of amazing to see Yes, there is like a mini metro area. I mean, I never thought there'd be a Target on Green Street. <laughs> that is something I just never dreamed right. of. Right. <laughs> a two-story, highly urbanized Target. And I guess you know, the, the local newspaper, the News Gazette, did a story. And this has now been several years ago. And so the population is even greater. But, you know, the the neighborhood, in your, if you're looking at City of Champaign neighborhood um, uh, designations, the campus proximate neighborhood in the City of Champaign as of several years ago, already had a higher population density than Chicago's most dense neighborhood, which is Streeterville. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time, years ago, it was 25, approaching 25,000 beds in one half a square mile. And since that time, we've had many blocks that have been redeveloped into much higher densities. So we really do have this, the, the term that was coined by one of the local uh, visitor groups was micro-urban. We really do have this urban core that is specifically campus town that is a more dense and diverse population than you will really find anywhere else, including in some of the largest cities in the country. It is very cool. Yeah, there are times where I'll, I'll ride my bike to work just so I can and I'll I'll pick up something. You know, back in our day, it was you maybe had a whitehead pantry, um, <laughs> a, a discount den. And then, you know, if you wanted to get, uh, you know, something out of the ordinary for cuisine, it was like La Bamba's or, uh, you know, maybe chopsticks. But now, yeah, I, I can not eat in the same place for weeks at a time. And I can exactly. pick up things on the way home 
that I normally would have to drive and make a separate trip up to North Prospect or to somewhere else in town. And I can, I'll, I'll pick that up on the way home because it, it's just available here and it, it's, it's really cool. So I know a lot of people still like to be nostalgic of, of their, their time here. I think campus is also the way you remember it when you were here as well as, as the fondest. So some people haven't really embraced the change as much, but it, it's, it's, it's really cool to see what's happening. I know people is and like, even well, though I you know, a patron. They- it was like, you know, of course, notoriously cams with, was within staggering distance for decades, within staggering distance of the psych building. You could tumble yes. right down the stairs and land right on a bar stool. And of course, to many people, it's like, oh, well, that's that's, a, you know, a complete heresy that now the home yes. of the drinking Illini is in this brand new facade on Green <laughs> right. Street, which you what know, has just... become of the world. <laughs> <laughs> right. But last weekend, I know people were running in the 5K as part of the Illinois Marathon, and they they ran down Green Street, and they were like, it was so cool. People from the rooftops at cams were, like, cheering us on. So, like, it also, yes. you know, while, you know, people still may be getting a little bent in there, they are more <laughs> closer to the, to the town part of, of the community exactly. as exactly. opposed to be being buried, you know, underground Uh here on six and Daniel. And with that segue, I think that's how I'm going to come to a close, <laughs> bring it all back circle back here to six and Daniel. So I appreciate your time, Matt. I loved hearing about all the things uh, you're doing and the strides you've made. Here's another thing I have to consciously in my head is kind of like um, nuclear and nuclear and <laughs> realtor and realtor. I think as a kid, I was always told it was realtor. So, so many times during this interview, I've had to like be in my own head. Like, don't you dare say realtor. Two syllable don't word. Don't you do Two it. syllable word. Don't you do it. So, yeah. Uh, just a little insight and where my brain well was done. going. Well done. Well done. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, again, I appreciate your time, dude. And um, anytime you're on campus, feel free to pop by. Thanks so much for the chance <laughs> to hang out with you. Have a great day. All right. Take care.